0: Well, hello, everybody. This is Rob Frenette with Hodgepod, and I have a special episode today. We're going to be talking radio, the history of radio, how it's evolved over the years. And uh, I have a special guest today. It's Michael C. Keith. Um, he is a, well known as a renowned radio broadcast expert. And uh, I was a student at Dean Junior College, which is now Dean College in the mid 80s. And uh, he was a uh, instructor, professor of mine when I was there. and. I could not think of anybody better to talk about radio than Michael C. Keith, Michael, welcome to my podcast. And thank you for joining me.
1: Hey, Rob, it's good to be with you. And it's good to uh, make contact with you again.
0: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So tell us a little bit about your background. You have an extensive background in radio <laughs> and it's pretty interesting. So how, uh, what, what is your background in radio? Cause I know it's expensive. Yeah. So please explain. Well,
1: that. uh, when I got out of the service in the sixties, uh, I went to a little radio school, and, and and I got my first job up at WTSL uh, in New Hampshire. From there, I ended up uh, ultimately at WRCH in Hartford, and then in Miami at WVCG, and then back up in Providence at WLKW. And it, it, it kind of worked my way right out of the business. During that time, I was getting my degrees and and then decided... Uh, to go into college teaching and to teach uh, uh, to teach radio and Dean College was actually my first full time uh college teaching job from there after uh, I was there twelve years and after that I went to uh, uh George Washington University and Marquette as visiting professor and then in uh, nineteen ninety three I joined the faculty the communication faculty at uh, uh at boston college uh where I continue to teach to this Uh, very day.
0: That is, that is extraordinary. And I can remember back when I was at uh, Dean junior college, it's now Dean college. They had a great radio station there. You could uh, get hands-on training. Uh, You and other professors were excellent as far as talking about radio. And I still remember to this day, learning more and more about radio. I'm a radio geek. I like to call myself. So, uh, what is, uh, what is the state of radio now? We'll talk about the history of radio, but radio has seemed to have, uh, have taken a few hits, but it survived, but it's changed in the last, what, 20 or 30 years?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, when I was teaching at Dean, uh, radio was in a very different place than it is today. Uh, uh, it was still the primary place where people went for audio. It was still the primary place where young people went for new music and music. Uh, and, and over the years, technology has bumped into that. I mean, uh, uh, with the advent way back in the 80s of the Sony Walkman and then, uh, 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 you know, the CD player, more, more and more people were being drawn away from radio for music, music mm-hmm. radio. Now, don't forget too. Music radio was the principal reason for uh, its audience. Most people listen to radio for music, not not all, but that was the number one draw. After that, it was talk, talk radio, and 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 other types of things. So it was being kind of bled of its uh, principal audience. In the 80s and and in the 1990s, and then in the 1990s we had a growing uh, uh, internet uh, presence, and suddenly we had satellite radio, and then we had uh, web radio, and then and then we had new devices like the iPod and the iPhone mm-hmm. and, and the iPad and and, and whatnot which offered music streaming services, which in, in many respects were the coup de gras to music radio. Music radio is pretty much a dead thing now, uh, uh, mm. with the exception of maybe some niche formats, specialty formats. Uh, I teach young people. Uh, when I went to Dean, that's where uh, young people were going to listen to music. Now, when I ask my students, how many of you listen to radio, uh, nobody, none of the 20 year olds are listening to radio anymore. Now that bodes very darkly for radio. If you don't have the 20 year old today, uh, you're not gonna survive because the 20 year old becomes a 30 year old and the 40 year old. And if there's nothing really to draw them back and so far, I don't see what it would be. uh, You're a dead medium ultimately. Uh, and especially in terms of music mm-hmm. you know uh radio does pretty well in terms of programming for sports aficionados sports radio uh probably is is the number one draw today for, uh, to tune in radio you okay. know it still has a market but when you go looking elsewhere and you look at other forms of programming uh you know, they don't have the audiences, and hundreds and hundreds of stations are going silent. They can't sustain uh, their existence anymore. And so uh, that you know, you ask me about the state state of radio. I think the state of radio is is very gl- glum, very dark. I would not want to own a radio station right now unless it was WBZ or one of the legacy stations that have held on. Uh, if I found myself owning a radio station, I really think the only way that you can hold on to the audience is if you're hyper local, hyper local, that you're doing something that, that listeners cannot find on the internet. And, and that would be uh, uh, local events, local I- issues, lo- things that are happening in your community. But for the young audience, they don't give a damn about locality they're not worried about what what's happening in my community you know what issues uh, appeared before the, the local uh town council i mean until they get older until they own property in a town until they have kids going to the schools there's just very little interest in localism uh so uh, uh you know radio will hold on to uh it's uh uh, people within its signal area uh, who live there, who are citizens of that, and and who are concerned about uh, taxation, the quality of education in the community and things like that. But that's such a narrow mm-hmm. uh, 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 area compared to, uh, you know, I, radio, you know, it was a true mass medium 30, 40 years ago. Uh, the bigger question now is, 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 is there mass media? Are there mass media, I should say correctly. Uh, uh, what defines mass media anymore? Right. Uh, the days of CBS uh, television and mutual radio, gone. I mean, it's just gone.
0: Oh, so, I remember you're I remember in, in the 80s. I mean, where I lived in northern north of Boston, there were like local radio stations and there were four or five stations in that area and they were all owned locally. But now- it's all conglomerate corporations owning radio stations wow. when did that all change well um, that, that was thing, the was
1: that was a telecom act of 1996 mm-hmm. that that said hey you know an, an individual or company can own as many radio stations as they want. No longer the 10, 10, 10, 12, 12, 12, 18, 18, 18, rule. It was thrown out of the window. So a company like Clear Channel saw gold in that. They thought, oh, my God, you know, we'll just buy up as many stations as we can in a major market like Boston. And we'll only the advertising dollar in Boston with our six stations in Boston. We'll just, mm-hmm. you know... And that's what they did. They bought up as many stations as they, at one time, Clear Channel owned a thousand, over a thousand radio stations. They owned one tenth of every, uh, of every station in, in, in the country. They owned one in 10, you know, and, but what was the coup de grace was they looked at the stations they owned, like in Boston. And they said, we own six stations and there's six different properties, and we're paying money for those six different properties. So let's sell all those properties and we'll put them in a mall. We'll put them in a factory. We'll put them all together, consolidations. Got it. Then they went a step further and figured well, why have local talent in, in, in a thousand markets when we can originate talent from our, our facility in Houston and we can beam? adult contemporary, we can beam country, we can beam top 40 uh, to to all of the stations that we own that are doing that format, and we can get rid of all the staffs. And in the process of doing that, they pretty much got rid of localism, too. The stations became generic sounding, they didn't have a local flavor, and, they, and this was done at the worst possible time, because that's when uh, the internet began offering music streaming services people young people had little devices that they could then download their favorite f- format from one of these streamers that had no commercials no DJs and they could essentially program their own radio station so it was a collision between uh, uh, the the loss of localism and and the power of the listener to create their own if you will their own radio station mm-hmm. and so that that was a a, a profound blow uh to to uh, radio stations around the country and wow. it is right now mm-hmm. and that and, and you know uh, radio lost its youth market there's no medium that can lose its youth market and 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 survive in the long term
0: you know yeah and the uh, formats Uh, Back in the '80s and talk radio, I can remember local talk stations in Boston. They all had local, local uh, talk show hosts from early, early morning to night till overnight. Right, Uh, and they don't have that anymore either. They just have it's syndication. And when did syndication really come into play for uh, for radio? In the '90s in the 90s. I
1: mean, syndication has been been there since the 70s, mm-hmm. but it really, really... You know what? When they eliminated the Fairness Doctrine uh, during the Reagan administration, and they said to stations, you no longer have to worry about uh, fair and equal broadcasts. We don't care. You can have all uh, uh, right-wingers on your station. That's fine. And that's when the right essentially took over talk radio with Rush Limbaugh and a bunch of others they dominated the scene in AM talk radio throughout the the, the late 80s and the 90s into the 2000s mm-hmm. and and uh, and so right there it lost half of its liberal listeners and it lost its youth market and and ironically when radio went on the skids because of the internet uh radio really lost its right wing constituency uh, uh that began blogging uh, mm-hmm. uh and and uh, and choosing to spend their energies efforts and money on the internet and no longer on am radio
0: what so is the uh, just, big what's the biggest company right now in um in uh own, ownership for radio stations at this time
1: you know uh, it, it's probably still Clear Channel, but I'm not up on the latest stats at all. Uh, you know, Clear Channel then found itself with a boatload of strations and their audience dwindling because of what it had done through consolidation. A- and also by what technology had eclipsed the value of the radio receiver. Uh, and then it began to try to unload it had paid top dollar mm-hmm. for the radio stations it bought, and then it found that it could that it couldn't unload those stations for the money it spent for the stations, so it was selling them at a, a much reduced a much reduced price. And uh, and it you know I don't know how many stations Clear Channel now owns, or if it's even still out there. you know, but. Uh, uh, you know, so that uh, th- that is kind of the evolution of of the economics of radio since the, uh, since the
0: nineteen eighties. Uh, I'm looking right now eight hundred. I just pulled this off the internet the other day, getting ready for this. Uh, eight hundred and sixty stations for iHeartRadio. NPR yeah. has a thousand. Odyssey has two thirty five. Cumulus has four hundred five, and then uh, Salem Radio has a, a has a a. a a group of radio stations as does ESPN Radio and there's other ones below that so the the mutual broadcasting systems that's cumulus is that correct yeah that's gone.
1: mutual wow yeah you know and and, and a, a lot of those that you mentioned aren't even uh, ownerships npr doesn't own right you know so they they syndicate their their programming, same with ESPN and whatnot. So the big time, huge, monstrous owners uh, have been working pretty steadily at unloading uh, because a lot of the stations are no longer terribly profitable.
0: Interesting. So radio has taken a hit, uh, you know, with streaming music and the internet and then uh, satellite radio as well. Looking at it, though, radio has a function as well. It's, uh, it serves the purpose of entertainment, news and information, emergency broadcasts and education, learning something new. Do you see that uh, maybe coming back? Yeah, I mean, you said earlier that you don't see radio, maybe it's in its gloomy phase. But do you see radio maybe making a comeback at some point? Or uh...
1: I don't think it'll ever be what it was. Mm-hmm. Its glory days are gone, you know, uh, but I don't see it becoming extinct as long as it holds on to some of the basics that that people uh, used it for, and as already indicated, I think if you have talented people on the air, if you have talented people on the air and they're adequately promoted, people are going to go find them. They're going to want, you know, we all do. We like talent and, and w- whatever form that comes on, uh, whatever form that comes in. Uh, also, again, I think the Mora Station is is a member of the community. The More Station reflects the gestalt of the mm-hmm. community and is seen as an integral part or, or a good citizen in the community. It will find listeners. The the problem is the new generation uh has a low valuation of localism. Uh you know, in terms of talent, sure. If there's, if there, the, the problem is there's a, a thousand different audio options out there. You you have a podcast. That's another option. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're good and and you have relevant material and you have a genial personality, you're marketable. But you're not going over the over the terrestrial radio. <laughs> yep. You know. And and so my outlook for traditional terrestrial radio uh, is is more negative than it is positive. And I think I think if radio is looking to regain its its former glory and thinks it can do what it used to do, then it's going to fail. You know, it has to redefine itself. Mm-hmm. And and redefining itself for a lot of stations is having a presence on the internet. That's a problem because then they're up against 10,000 other audio options. Whereas if they're in a city like Springfield, Massachusetts, and, and, you know, uh, you know, and and they're doing local and they've got the former mayor who had a big following and he's on the air, then, you know, then you'll have, uh, you'll have a piece of the pie, but that piece of the pie is never going to be. Uh, uh, what it, what pieces of pie used to be just not going to happen now. Here an analogy I use and it's a poor one uh, because uh, the uh, 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 you know the the uh, subject I employ mm-hmm. is that uh, it used to be that radio stations were like the in a, in a market uh, were like the anchor stores on a mall you know, and now they're just one of the stores on the malls, but now we're in an age where malls are closing folding, you know because people are resorting to shopping on the internet Well, people are resorting to listening on what's on the internet, and it's a very crowded space, how do you single yourself out to survive how do you get advertisers you know, when you're one of 10,000 out there and and you're showing that you have uh you know 280 listeners <laughs> you you're never going to get major advertisers with 280 you're not going to do it you know you might get some local mom and pop shops but so it's it, you know it's like the daytimer uh, uh you know that that's on, that, that used to be on the air from sunrise to sunset Mm-hmm. And, and with that 250 watt signal, it was a battle Royal long before the internet to, to get advertisers. And it depended on localism and, and really uh, dominant uh, dominantly appealing personalities. And it was still a, a horrible battle. Well, uh, you know, uh, move that over to the internet and compound it by a thousand times. And that's what you've got, you know, Um uh, You know, here it is. You know, I'm being just subjective about that. This is the way I see it. I, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. Uh, All I can operate is on my my experience and my instincts that tell me that uh, 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 that I wouldn't want to own a radio station. I just not (laughs) no. I'd run away from that. You know. Unless they were selling WVZ for five hundred dollars, yeah, yeah, WVZ like like
0: broadcasting into thirty-eight states across the country,
1: yeah,
0: yeah. I remember uh, when I first started uh, when I broke out of college and got my first job. I worked at WHDH as a producer, Ooh, and uh, before I got on air again. Um, and I remember you had the news director, you had news reporters, you had Ooh. the program director, assistant oh, yeah. program director, production crew. Uh, the, you had
1: superstars. You had Jess Kane, who Jess was Kane. the morning man for 30 years, and he had huge listenership. Huge. And they, yeah, and they could demand top dollar for advertisers. And they were sold out a lot of times, you know. Larry Glick,
0: he, Larry Glick, Larry Glick. Uh, in his later years uh, used to come after Jess Kane, and he was a major, major draw. Eddie Endelman was a major draw oh, yeah, in Boston and for guys. him. I remember.
1: uh, Oh yeah, I remember WBZ in the '60s and '70s. You know, they were playing they were playing music mm-hmm. and monster people like Carl DeSouz and Dick Dick Summers, and I mean, they had huge followings. And then over on WMEX Wimax had Arnie Wu Ginsburg, who was a huge draw. And and that's you know that's a thousand years ago. That doesn't exist anymore. Uh, can it? Can it? exist again who's to say but i think the smart money is no
0: i can remember uh uh, there was uh, wbos was in the uh, opposite side there and station had its own on-air own staff and now like you said with the consolidation that's like like it could be like 40 50 jobs of people who Mm -hmm. are working consolidated working for um you know with, with a pod of stations that they're at where they're at Um, They're selling for all the stations, right?
1: Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. They have two engineers for 40 stations. You know, I mean, when I worked in radio uh, at stations uh, like WRCH in Hartford, beautiful facility, full time engineers 24 7, you know, uh, 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 news department, DJs. I was the production director there and I I did an afternoon shift, copywriting department it was it was glorious it was it was the time to be in radio yeah i can't imagine what it must feel like to be in radio anymore i just can't imagine it uh, I, I i would just find it just, just you know just a different animal and 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 depressing i mean i've got former students like you who are who are in radio in boston joe cortez yep. you know he does the 80s show syndicated and whatnot. And I'm always amazed that he's still gainfully employed there where he's been for 25 years. But that's owned by one of the big uh, uh, radio corporations. And and they still find a means of generating revenue from what he does and, and, and whatnot. So uh, but it, it's uh, it's sparse.
0: Yeah, yeah, I remember uh, in my summer uh, vacations and also going home for my breaks, I would go work at, uh, Kurt Gowdy had a couple of stations in Lawrence, oh, Mass. Yeah, and yeah he, he had, uh, we had WCGY and WCCM yeah. in Lawrence, Mass, and uh, I'd go home and uh, work there and do sports, and uh, Dan Roach is on Channel 4, was uh, yeah, Dan was there, Um, he was there as well, Um, but I remember, you know, uh, you, you talked about local, we'd go do barbecues every Friday during the summer, Um, they, they, uh, the listeners could bring, uh, you know, uh, 50 of their favorite friends and guests and family. And then they had the swap shop shows on Saturday morning. Everything was local music talk. And it was just like, it was like its own little niche inside those cities, uh, for the Merrimack Valley. So I can see where you're saying, I think if you, those stations get that local feel to it, I think they could draw in more listeners. I think you're right. I
1: think so. I, it's just a it's a tough road and and uh, uh it it requires resources and a lot of the small stations that all of us have worked at they don't have any resources anymore they're they're they they can barely pay in two people who keep the station on the air it's very i i've been to two or three stations uh a few years ago that were were all but crippled. And and it was (laughs) was so sad. And they're gone. They they, they just Hmm. couldn't, they couldn't raise local revenue. People weren't interested in spending $5 a commercial on the station, because they were aware that people were just not listening anymore. You know, so, you know, I mean, radio had two really rich lifetimes, the, the golden days of radio, you know, the salad days of radio, 20s, 30s, and 40s. Mm-hmm. And then when TV came along, it, uh, radio was decimated for a time. It reinvented itself with music. You know, rock radio came in, the transistor miniaturized radio, gave it a whole new audience, and it flourished. In fact, it had more people listening than it did during its golden age. But now it's into its dark age, where it's mm-hmm. lost the bulk of its followers, the bulk of its advertisers, uh, and, and it's, it, it's, you know, it's on life support in many respects. There are some stations, you know, uh, sports radio stations, major markets that are affluent, that are making money, but there are, there are, there are exceptions, I can't point out one, and I'm sure your listeners might be able to, but I can't really point to one super successful music radio station in the country. Yeah. I can't, you know? Uh, So, so radio is in its third stage, its final stage, as far as I can tell. Now, you know, you never know what's going to happen. You know, someone may come down the pike with, with a way to revivify, Radio, but I've been in it long enough, and it could, if if it could be reviv- revivified, I think I would sense it. No, how, if I suddenly woke up tomorrow and somebody said you own a five thousand watt station in Worcester, uh, and you and and you got to keep it on the air, uh, well, obviously you look around at what's there, you know, and and if someone's doing a shitty job with uh, sports radio well maybe you can do it better and maybe nope. you can grab off some listeners that's a tough game uh, if there's nobody doing local at all and there's no really catchy personalities I might lean in that direction try to lean in it because Worcester's kind of going through a bit of a renaissance now with the with uh, the WUSACs that brought a lot the of, of the money in it's beginning to look you know so it you know timing is everything too but like i said a while ago i just i wouldn't want to be faced with that challenge you know oh, so i really wouldn't
0: you know over the years uh the syndicated radio shows have taken uh taken a, a like a 180 or maybe a 360 you know you back in the 80s you would have uh Larry King at night, Bruce Williams at night, um, sure. Art Bell, yep. uh, and then like local syndication, you'd have medical shows, but then they'd be replaced, you know, by talk shows, uh, Rush mm-hmm. Limbaugh, I remember late eighties. And then oh, we sure. have other ones now, um, you know, that are like Glenn Beck and Sean Hannity. Yeah. So how was, uh, how's the tone of talk radio change? It's oddly changed. I remember years ago when, you know, you could have a civil discussion on radio and uh, recently Jim Bohannon passed away. He's probably the last of the great uh, talk show hosts where he, you know, didn't degrade people on the phone and always was a, a gentleman, but uh, not knocked in the shows today, but he was, uh, you could listen to that show and know you weren't going to get a yelling match.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, right. Well, uh, radio has been totally politicized uh most of the talk radio shows that you have on lean hard to the right uh and and that's where they're getting their listeners from you don't have any real uh Jim bohannon you don't have any uh real uh talkmeisters that are on there that bring more intellectual or or or, or balanced cultural uh discussions on radio, you have to go over to NPR, you have to go over to public radio, uh, uh, you know, that's where, uh, it, it, right now, maybe just like the country, which is split in two factions, uh, the conservatives, if they're listening to radio, are listening to AM radio, or maybe a few uh, 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 FM talkers, and if you're liberal, you're listening to public radio, right? uh Stations that are licensed commercially uh, aren't aren't putting uh, liberals and progressives on the air, because if they can pick up right wing syndicators, they stand to make a few bucks with them. Uh, I ha- have yet to come across a station that does a, a decent mix of of either side. I mean, of both sides, and, and because they're of the opinion that. If you've got right-wing talkers on there and you interject uh, a liberal talker, that'll, that'll turn them off. They'll leave you. They'll go someplace else where they can get all the right-wing uh, uh, programming they want. Uh, it ends up being hardcore right and, uh, and liberal and progressive, uh, listening to public, public radio or other forms of, of progressive radio.
0: I still listen to uh all different formats. I also listen to the nighttime shows. If I'm up, I'll listen to uh Coast to Coast with George Norrie or uh Ground Zero with Clyde Lewis and uh, you know, some during the days you have uh some other talk show hosts that uh are uh, a little bit controversial. So what is uh right. what's nighttime TV like? Uh I I think uh, that adds a different little element at night as well with uh uh Coast to Coast and uh of these other shows at night
1: uh well i think it pretty much is the same situation i think if you know if if you're looking for political talk and you're a republican you're going to seek out you know uh that uh that political ideology no matter where it shows up if you're online there's tons of that stuff that you can get uh and if you know if you're a progressive there's tons of that that you can get mm-hmm. uh, um so listening and viewing uh, have have become so political uh uh and politicized by what what has happened in our political system that uh, there doesn't seem to be any middle ground anymore yeah. yeah i
0: remember in the uh listening to talk radio in the 80s and, and 90s there was there was a lot of middle ground and yeah uh, there was a lot of middle ground. You could you could hear people have a conversation on the radio and it was just, you know, just a nice way to listen to, you know, different points of view. And like you said, uh, not getting political here, but, you know, there is a there is it's like a shouting match all the time. And sometimes yeah. it, it gets rather boring. It, it
1: It really does, because everybody's angry, <laughs> you <laughs> know. Nobody can give an inch. Nobody can say, (laughs) well, you know what, so-and-so, you know, the Republican Senator the other day said, you know, when you really think about it, it makes sense. Who's doing that? You you know, uh, so there's, there's, there's just no, there's just no feeling of camaraderie or friendship or we're all in this together anymore. It's us and them, you know, And, 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 and the and it's just a hostile atmosphere uh, uh and uh, you know is that going to change is that going to somehow recede and people are beginning to come more uh tolerant of of your fellow American uh, because you know I mean the fact that we're so uh, uh, gnarled up because half the country is against abortion and half is pro-abortion instead of saying, well, I can see the wisdom in being against uh, the termination of a pregnancy, except I still support the right of a woman.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You don't hear anybody saying that anymore. <laughs> you know, you got, you know, uh, fetus killers and you've got, you know, abortion advocates. I mean, you know, and that's, you know, that that's that's kind of sums up, you know, the, the, the prevailing gestalt of of this nation right now. And that's, you know, that's caused us problems. You know, it's caused us January 6th. It's caused us, you know, factions that clearly support a madman, you know, a person who uh, has such narcissistic and, and dictator tendencies that it's obvious to those who are full blown members of that person's cult uh, how did how did we get there how did we get in that situation you know it's not all the fault of conservatives <laughs> you know it's not all the fault of liberals at one point in in the last century we lived together we fought together you <laughs> know we worked together yep. and and uh, in the last 20 years that has and and to, You know, to be honest, the media is uh, pretty responsible for that situation, because we ended up with advocacy news. We ended up with ideological news. We ended up with news that purported to be, you know, fair and balanced and, and wasn't. And people who were indoctrinated to that fair and balanced or liberal viewpoint suddenly saw nothing else but that viewpoint. And that took us to where we ended up so fractious, you know, so, so, so divided. The internet, despite its great virtues and its its remarkable uh, 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 benefits, has turned into also a very toxic place. You know, you, you, you've got Alex Jones. You've got, and, and they have, they have big followings, substantial followings, uh, and you've got the Oath Keepers and you've got all of these groups because of the uh, nature of the Internet, where it's not under the aegis of the federal government. You've got all of this wild and crazy stuff that's out there uh, that's influencing powerfully and so influencing people who haven't tried to get the other side of the story. They haven't tried so now they're deeply rooted in a belief system that is that is counterintuitive to most intelligence and that is, uh, uh, generally speaking, uh, 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 dangerous uh, to the unity of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am now of the mind that there needs to be governance of the Internet. I was always opposed to that. I always liked the idea that there was... Uh, you know, uh, media uh, that was completely open to all viewpoints. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good, I suppose, in its, you know, theoretical stage, but in its application stage, that has become a big problem, a huge problem in this country. Now, uh, when I say I'm I'm not pro-censorship, I am pro uh, 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 constitution. And pro maintaining the well being of the country and 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 when the well being of the country is threatened by ideologies that are so out there and so potentially damaging, then I say, okay. We need governance. We need some governance. We're kind of at that, you know, radio was this benign thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when you look back at it. I know in the 80s and 90s, there was a lot of complaints about AM radio, you know, it's all right wing and they're all, but, but the right wing that were over there weren't, weren't as extreme and nutcases as what you now find dominating or not dominating what you find all over the Internet. You know, Rush Lamba was a windbag from a uh, from a, a liberal's perspective. But I don't recall him saying, get out there and and, and 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 invade the Capitol building and bring your guns. And, you know, he didn't. He, you know, he, he didn't do that. uh well, I was on a committee of the Radio Hall of Fame that inducted him into the Hall of Fame. Uh I wanted Howard Stern in at the time, but he didn't, he didn't make it. Eventually he did, you know, but, uh, but uh, talk radio was 90% of it. I should say was pretty benign, you know, they had their right to express their views, you know, the fairness doctrine was gone. So if they wanted to be all right, so, you know, that, you know, the government, uh, uh, agreed with the elimination of the fairness doctrine you know but then there there was two or three percent of that hundred percent that that was advocating extreme right-wing views uh, a lot of uh, uh, extremist groups including the kkk were, were using the airwaves to recruit and indoctrinate and that resulted in 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 my book that was co-authored with robert hilliard waves of rancor which looked at extreme right-wing radio uh and and uh uh it's as relevant today as when it was published in 1999 Mm -hmm. even more so but in 1999 we we were talking about the internet you know we we were talking about broadcasting in shortwave the shortwave band you know uh and uh uh, that book ended up uh, ended up in the White House, and it ended up being on President Clinton's official summer reading list. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Surprise to us. One day, I woke up and I looked at its Amazon rating, and I went, "What has happened?" <laughs> the next day, it was in the New York Times and and, and Time Magazine, and uh, and then we had uh, people like Rush Limbaugh and. Uh, Oh God! Who was the the uh, one of the uh, 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 oh God the White House uh, plumbers during Watergate? That he had a, oh, a, g Gordon a, Liddy. Yes, he cursed us in his show. He said that book by Hilliard and Keith is a bunch of blah blah blah. <laughs> you know, but fair enough. He had his opinion, and and it it was certainly uh, anti extremist elements, and and yet. You know, it was a knee-jerk reaction by Lumbaugh and Liddy because uh, we never really classified them as extremists. We just said that their broadcast led to extremism. The fact that they were on there and preaching against liberalism and this and that and whatnot, I think fanned the flame of the extreme right wing. That's, you know, that's all we said. But in any event. Uh, uh, it's comparing apples and oranges now. Uh, 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 talk radio and and internet blogs, uh, uh, political talk radio, political internet uh, blogs. Very, you know, because anything goes over on the right, except not everything goes because because uh, Alex uh, Jones uh, mm-hmm. was nailed, and and I was really happy to see to see that as he should have been nailed.
0: Oh, for uh, Sandy at, Hook. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So anyway. So who, you uh, you had mentioned uh that you were uh you voted for Rush Limbaugh and Alec um and uh Howard, Howard Stern. Yeah. Um what what other uh talk show hosts have you uh, have you did you have a chance to meet both of them or what other uh hosts in uh, in the radio yeah, world met, have you had a chance to meet? I,
1: uh, uh, Larry King. Wow. As a matter of fact, he blurbed uh, he blurbed a couple of books of mine. He blurred my I, I had a memoir published uh almost 20 years by Algonquin Books, and, and he blurbed that that memoir. Uh uh so, uh so I knew him. Well, I I met him in person at the Radio Hall of Fame ceremonies because I was one of the overseers of that. And he was the host. Mm-hmm. He was the host of the Radio Hall of Fame ceremony uh and uh rush Limbaugh was there and i sat at a table right next to him studs turk a lot of these you know
0: wow.
1: uh so i got to meet a few of them but but you know not not uh, as many as uh I, I do have a you know uh, a, a couple of interesting stories about both of those guys but i won't it takes up too much time yeah. to to tell you off mic. Someday we'll talk.
0: <laughs> Larry King was a uh, Larry King was a um, a true pioneer of late night radio. When I was growing up, I remember listening to him, and um, you know he'd have all the guests he used to have on at CNN, and he was really oh, uh, really a pioneer, don't you think?
1: Oh, he was. He he really did uh, uh, made all night talk radio a real thing. Because, because of his popularity, he was getting real big-time advertisers who generally stayed away from all-night radio. You know, uh, I was on—I um, was in radio down in Miami in the early seventies at WVCGWYOR, and then later at WINZ. Mm-hmm. And but when I was at at uh, WVCG, uh, Larry King was a local hit, not national. He was only in Miami, and he was on W-I-O-D-A-M radio that night. Uh, I-O-D stood for Wonderful Isle of Dreams when Call Letters would, And he got into trouble. He got a donation given to him to convey to the candidate, and he didn't do that. He took the money to the racetrack because he was addicted to the ponies. And then he was found out. And then he was humiliated. He was fired from his TV show, local. He was fired from WIOD. And a couple of my buddies, we would go to Wolfie's, which is a deli on Biscayne Boulevard. This is 45 years ago. And we would sit there and we'd see Larry come in after the scandal all by himself, crestfallen. He'd sit at the counter all by himself. Nobody would talk to him nobody would approach him and we would sit at our table and say what a stupid so and so he blew a great career <laughs> little did we know 2 years <laughs> later he was he'd be doing he'd be doing uh, you know coast to coast and he became the biggest talker in the history of radio so he he was like the, the phoenix rising from the ashes you can't keep good talent down he he just had a brilliance yeah. Uh, on the air, and, and then after that, he, he became Larry King, you know, uh, but uh, uh, he had and a then, great
0: connection on the radio, and I remember he after each show would end, he'd say, going to Duke Siebert's, he'd <laughs> always talk about his lunches over at you'd uh, see all the power players in D.C. at lunch, and yeah. um, he was able to get uh, politicians on his show, too, which was uh, pretty, pretty awesome as well, so
1: he was a pretty good guy, I, I had some some exchanges with him and I was just this academic I was chair of education at the Museum of Broadcast Communications in Chicago so I was involved with the Radio Hall of Fame blah 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 you know but uh, uh, he came in to host that show and nobody picked him up at the airport this is Larry King coming in to host (laughs) the Radio Hall of Fame show and I came in to the uh, cultural center where the museum was and he's standing in the hallway, and I know him as soon as I see him. I say, "Hi, Larry. Can I help you?" And he says, "Yeah, yeah. Where, where's, where am I supposed to go?" <laughs> he says, "I don't." He said, "You know, I just, I was just dropped off here in the cab, but the building's huge." And I said, "You were just, yeah." He said, "Nobody met me at the airport. I had to get a cab in, so I, I took him into the president's, Al, Al, in uh, Bruce Dumont, who's the nephew of." Al Dumont, the Dumont Network, and I told him, and he was furious. Somebody dropped, somebody dropped the ball. But, but Larry King, he, but he, but he was good natured about it. He wasn't wow. indignant or anything. He just kind, of, you could tell behind his voice was half a chuckle that it happened. And then I saw him witness. I witnessed him host the Radio Hall of Fame coast to coast on a dozen stations live in the banquet hall where we all sat and uh, I never saw anybody as relaxed and graceful as he, as he was on a live, on a live connection where he was introducing the people who would induct Mm. the, you know, these people like Susan Stamberg of, of of all things considered studster and whatnot. And he, uh, he would, he would walk off the stage, uh, uh, you know, between, inductions and and he'd be talking to people and the director was melting down where's Larry where's Larry and they'd be going nine eight seven and they'd be saying Larry and Larry was like at three he'd just meander back up bam on like I mean just on never wow. missing a beat you know and I and I thought there's there's that incredible there's that incredible gift and that incredible talent this guy has you know and then he he, he very generously, uh, uh, blurred, uh, my, my books. And then I actually interviewed him for another book. So that was, wow. so
0: yeah, that was neat. That you That know. is neat. You come across people like that because he was huge when he was on radio, but he even got hu- uh, bigger when he was on CNN, which was incredible. Oh, like, yeah? I find that, I find that fascinating that I like those little stories of inside base. I call it inside baseball. I like that.
1: Um, and in fact, another person that you'll, you'll know, that I became connected with was Paul Harvey. You know, Paul so Harvey, that's
0: right? A, elaborate uh, on that if you could.
1: Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, when I worked at, when I was chair of the museum, uh, he was a big benefactor of the museum. His wife, Angel Harvey, uh, was the connection with the museum and Paul Harvey. Uh, so, uh, uh and she would drop into my office and say hi. And occasion, occasionally she'd have him by the hand and, and he would come into my office. And I was gogged because when I was in radio 25 years, we, we carried Paul Harvey, you know, <laughs> and now Paul Harvey is there. In fact, one of my a favorite photographs of mine is being on stage with Paul Harvey as he's straightening out my bow tie. <laughs> wow. Paul, Paul Harvey. And then, uh, and then he blurbed uh, a book of mine. And then he also, I interviewed him for a book of mine called Talking Radio, uh, where I also had contact with. I mean, you'll drool if you hear some of the people that I was interviewing from Walter Cronkite to Charles Collingwood to Robert Trout to Casey Kasem to all of these people. I, wow. because of my connection as chair of the museum, I had great access to all these people. So I was living vicariously,
0: you know,
1: by, by meeting these people.
0: You know, uh, you mentioned Casey Kasem. They still play his uh, they still play his uh, on a local station here in Memphis where I live. They still play his uh, top 40. Um, You know, they'll play it back from whatever year, you know, uh, when he was in, he was just, he was incredible. I mean, when you listen to his delivery and, and the music and you
1: know, he was, he was such a sweet guy. He was just a, he was just a real warm guy, you know? Mm. Uh, and I appeared on stage. I've got a photograph right here, but you don't have time to to have me walk to the other room. It's, <laughs> it's, it's right there. But, uh, and then I talked with him on the phone. I call him up. Uh, Hi, Casey is my And, he would just talk about, he'd talk about what he was doing in the house. They just bought a house and his wife kind of wanted this big house and oh my God, it's too bad. I can't, I can't do, I don't know what to do here <laughs> and, and whatnot. But he was just open and just, you know, down to earth and very frank, you know, and like we always hear from people, oh, you know, uh, despite uh, this person's fame and image, he he was down to earth and a real person. But a lot of them, the limited number I I met were very much uh, uh easy to easy to be with.
0: Yeah, I remember when I worked at uh I worked as I helped out on the sports huddle on Sunday nights with Eddie Endelman oh, yeah. and Jim McCarthy yeah. and Mark Wicken. And I remember listening to Eddie Endelman in the early '80s on Sports Huddle on Sunday nights. That was like the yeah. must listen to sports show. Eddie Endelman was a was an eight lister '80s '90s '70s. Now,
1: did he pass away, Eddie?
0: Uh, I think he's still living in Florida, if I'm not mistaken. Um, okay. I have I have not heard anything about that. I know I think he was living living in South Florida somewhere.
1: I was at a birthday party with him, uh, uh, Joe Cortez, who's right out of Dean, graduated yes, from Dean. Uh, but by this point, he'd been on Boston radio ten years, and then made it pretty. Did it did well with the 80s show when he had a birthday? Eddie Edelman, who was at the same station, and, and those pay, people were over, and I was at the birthday party. And, and they were a bunch of fun loving, easy to be around guys, you know. So it was kind of neat, yeah, uh, being around oh, yeah. them anyway.
0: Yeah, I uh, I, when I worked on the sports shuttle, I worked uh, at HDH and WEI when it became a sports station, and um, Eddie could not have been nicer to me um he was very uh very very cool i couldn't believe i was actually helping out on the show he was on it was like when i first couple of months i was like in like awe of him but um he was very nice and he had me get into one of his hot dog safaris in the early 90s at wei (laughs) he says you're gonna do it and then one other time he on a sunday night show he said uh i need you to do me a favor tomorrow and i said well what's that he goes i need you to pick up kevin McHale at the airport and i said all right i'll go pick him up in my car it's no problem Well, he had a limousine (laughs) ready for me to pick up, pick me up to go to the airport, to get Eddie, uh, Kevin McHale for a sports show that they were doing for channel 56. It was a Roger Clemens, Andre Tippett, Cam Neely and Kevin McHale and Kevin McHale was coming in from a plane from Philadelphia. And that's where you can go back to the gates, you know, to the gates and wait for him. And his plane was late. And I was on the phone with the producers from channel 56. And I said, his plane's running late. And Kevin comes off the plane. I was like, oh my God, that's Kevin McHale. (laughs) I said, oh, hey Kevin, wild. I'm gonna pick you up for the show. Whoa. We got in the limousine. He could not Kevin McHale could not have been nicer. But uh, Eddie Enderman was so awesome. Uh uh it's one of the memories I have working in radio. You cannot and he was like total sports back then. I really yeah. it was really awesome.
1: When I worked at WVCG in Miami, they were connected with the Miami Dolphins during their perfect season year. So I was in uh, <laughs> I did a couple of programs with with a couple of the dolphins, Paul Warfield, and wow, and, you know, just and Nick Bonaconti who was the captain of the team. I called him by accident on a private <laughs> phone line and woke him up because I was supposed to be in contact with another Nick. It was the PR person for the Dolphins <laughs> to get information, and I and I say hi, uh, uh, Nick, and he groggly. Yeah, his Nick. I said, okay, listen, I need some copy from you. I said, and he goes, you, you need some copy? And this is when he's the captain of the Dolphins in the perfect season. And then it dawned on me, he, he said, no, no, this is Nick Bonacanti." I almost dropped the phone. I thought, oh, God, I'm in trouble now. You know. And he laughed, and he turned. He said, no, he's he got the wrong Nick. Oh, <laughs> then, Wow. So anyway, yeah, we all have stories, you
0: know. Oh yeah, I love the stories. I mean, there's just the work, like when one last thing when I worked on the Sports Huddle, Bob Lobel would come up, Sean McDonough, Will McDonough, um, Roger Clemens came up. It was just uh, it was just a lot of fun, and uh, just like those are memories that you have when you uh, work in those uh, settings. So
1: work,
0: yeah, especially when you work in a big
1: market like Boston. If you worked in Springfield, you'd never see these people. But you worked at a big station. And so you have those. The, speaking of EEI, they were just in the news today. They they dumped a couple of their big, uh, speaking of things changing, uh, one guy w- had played at the Red Sox for oh, a long time. Oh, Lou Maloney.
0: Time. Yeah.
1: Yeah, he got, they, yeah they, I they, saw that. Did you see that? Yeah, he's gone. And somebody else has gone too. So, you know, I'm thinking maybe they they were, you know, they were just too rich for their blood at EEI. Uh
0: wow. and,
1: and maybe they're having the downside size their budget too. Now, wow.
0: Who knows? Well, Michael, Keith, thank you so much for joining me today. I really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation about radio and uh, learning about some of the, uh, the intricacies of uh, your experience and also the people that you've met along the way. Uh, I thought that was fascinating towards the end and just the whole conversation. So um, I thank you very much for coming on my podcast and taking some time out. It was uh, quite extraordinary. I really enjoyed it.
1: I appreciate you having me on, Rob. And it was nice catching up with you after 30 years.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Unbelievable. You know, one real real quick thing. I remember I was working at WGAO um, in 1986, and I was working at the station when the Challenger, uh, you know, blew up in the air.
1: I I was standing in Roger's office when that blew up. Yeah. You know, do you, do you remember uh, Vic Michaels?
0: Yes. I think and I do. Rich yeah. that name springs a bell. What about Rich Pizzullo? Nope. I don't remember okay. that name. Okay.
1: I just, I've been gone from there for 32 years, you know? So, uh, I, I, but, but Vic still there, you know, still working the place.
0: Wow. That's just incredible how this time flies, but uh Thank you so much for joining me. I, I really do appreciate it. Yes, yeah, stay healthy and prosper. All right. Take care.